In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A warm welcome to you in Athenry. This is uh, Father Brendan Kilcoyne coming to you with the Brendan Option, courtesy of Immaculata Productions. If you like, if you enjoy, if you're getting some spiritual profit from this little work, uh, would you, for God's sake, before we all end up in the workhouse, would you hit that subscribe button? And flee to Patreon, there to deposit vast amounts of liquid cash, which will do us all a power of good. Thank you. And after that worldly introduction, I now propose to address the gospel. This is probably one of the most dramatic scenes in the gospels, uh, short of the actual passion of our Lord. This is a very striking episode. Now, John puts this... And by this, I mean the cleansing of the temple. I mean basically the tantrum, for want of a better word, that our Lord threw in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, when he went into it. John puts it at the very beginning. The synoptics put it nearer the end, just before the Passion, but all the Gospels tell it. And some scholars think that the reason there's a a disagreement among them as to exactly when it happened, maybe that it happened a few times. Who knows? In any case, John is a great man for premeditated positioning of material. So if he puts it at the beginning, it's in chapter 2, today's gospel, if he puts it at the very beginning, you can be sure that he has done it with purpose of forethought. He's making a crucial point. Now, where did it happen? It happened in the court of the Gentiles, uh, a a section of the temple which was open to, to the goyim, to the peoples, to the very peoples to whom salvation had been promised in Isaiah, Jeremiah. And it's... Here that we see Jerusalem as as Jeremiah, if it was Jeremiah, calls her in Lamentations, the mistress of the Gentiles. Here the huge throng that has come into the city for the Passover is crammed into the court of the Gentiles. The ancient sources put the numbers, they give huge numbers for the population of Jerusalem, but also for the huge influx that would have happened for the Passover. Modern scholars doing very careful detective work, people of the likes of Joachim, Jeremias and people like that, they would be inclined to put the population of Jerusalem, I think, something around 20, 25, 30,000. The stable population, counting the population just outside the walls. And they would reckon that for the Passover, an additional 120, 130,000 would have crammed into the city. A huge number. Now, we know that the way they handled it would be to sound horns and allow crowds to come into the court of the Gentiles in succession. And one ancient manuscript says that they were able to deal with the crowd in three waves. And that for two of them, the court was crammed and the third one not so much so. So you're talking an enormous number of people. You're talking thousands of people with their sacrificial animals crowded into the court of the Gentiles. Absolute murder going on, a huge racket, a huge hubbub. And there, of course, you have the temple, Bureau de Change. You have these counters at which the money changers are changing 
the pagan currency that most of the people had, Roman, uh, Greek, whatever, they're changing it into acceptable temple currency. And of course, they're, they're making a little on the top. Some of them were making a lot on the top, which may be partly the reason why Jesus became so infuriated at the scene in front of him. Now, he, we're told that he toppled the tables, scattered their coins, he made a quip out of some cord, and he dispersed the money changers in, in fear. He assaulted them, in fact. Can you imagine the effect of that in the huge crowd and the din of the court of the Gentiles? And he says to them, you've turned my father's house into a market. Now, the the synoptics, John is being very, very uh, polite here. The synoptics are more inclined to say that he accused them of turning the temple into a den of thieves or perhaps even more accurately, a robber's cave. Yeah, something with which people would have been well familiar at the time. Now, this is an absolutely remarkable point. And I think John has done this deliberately. Some of the commentators would tell us, here Jesus reveals himself. It comes shortly after the wedding at Cana, where he's already revealed himself. Here he reveals himself as the temple. In other words, it's over. The old dispensation is over. And here is the new dispensation. Because he's saying effectively that the Old Testament... You remember what he says to them when the Jewish authorities not unreasonably ask him, what authority do you have to carry on like this? And he says to them, destroy this sanctuary and in three days I will rebuild it. And they think he's talking about the temple, but of course he's talking about himself. He is the temple. Now this is huge. And also uh, the, the sacrifices are over. The old sacrifices are over. They're no longer efficacious. The animals, the turtle doves, the pigeons, if you were poor, that's all over. Because the temple, like most uh, ancient temples, was a slaughterhouse. It ran with blood at the time of the sacrifices. And actually John puts our Lord later in his passion. He puts our Lord dying at three o'clock in the afternoon, the time at which the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. John is constantly making this point. And remember that John is doing this through divine inspiration. This is very powerful. Now, something that's crucial here, we are not being told that the Old Testament is now defunct and abrogated. That's not what has happened. What has happened is that the Old Testament is standing in front of them as the New Testament. The Old Testament is fulfilled. The Word of God is now alive and active. It is present in its flesh in front of them. The incarnation has happened. Everything that was promised by the prophets has happened in front of them. The kingdom is already among them. This is just seismic. This is temple veil ripping stuff. This is just huge. And of course it has outraged the temple authorities and others who are there, others of the Jewish, shall we say, spiritual intelligentsia who are there. They're absolutely furious. There's an awful lot we can take out of this. Try to imagine again the din, the press of bodies in the court of the Gentiles, the smell of animal crap on the floor, the sweat, the clink of the coins, the dealing and bartering and haggling and quarrelling that's going on over the tables of the money changers. And then our Lord comes, this wild man, this wild man from Nazareth. 
he comes and he turns over the tables and whips the money changers away and faces the authorities, shaking with anger. You have turned my father's house into a market or a den of thieves. There is no way that we can regard this scripture and not feel quite rightly that God is talking to us through this scripture about our present circumstances in the church. Okay, I, now I, I'm just going to put that to you. I don't know what you're going to think now of, of the way I'm going to go with this, but I really think, I really feel inspired to offer you this comparison, and I really think it would be fruitful where you to take it and think about it. Jesus is the temple. The church is the body of Christ on earth. The church is Christ's body on earth. The church, in a sense, in a sense, is the temple for the rest of history. The transubstantiated, if you can say that, the host in the tabernacle is the temple. It is the center of the temple. It is the holy of holies. Not the tabernacle itself, but the host that's in it. He is the temple, as he is the door and the way. We live in him. We worship in him. Now, I'm going to approach this at two levels. The first one now, you're going to think I'm being a right nanny. And you know what they say? That people will stand the rule of a tyrant, but against a nanny, they will rise up in fury. So it's a dangerous business niggling people about what they might think are small things. But these are not small things. I want to take up the way we're behaving in the temple. The way we're behaving in Christ. I want to take up the way we're behaving in the church. First, and for a start, how you behave in the church. And I just want to say is that Irish churches, if the old temples were scenes of, of intermittent carnage, Irish churches outside of the lockdowns are scenes of intermittent sacrilege. And I put all of us in this boat, priests and people, gloriously united in a way that would gladden the heart of the fathers of Vatican II. We are all together in this and we are as guilty as sin. I see devout Catholics, and I'm not saying that lightly, genuinely devout Catholics who could buy and sell me in terms of being people of prayer, carrying on profane conversations at the back of the church. I hear them do it during adoration. I hear them doing it at the beginning of before Mass. And I hear them do it at the end of Mass. And I'm telling you something else. This isn't new. We can't blame this on Vatican II. I remember 50 years ago in Killeen Church, the old canon, the, the little church where I would serve Mass and where I was ordained, having to go down to the back of the church to ask genuinely Catholic believers at the back of the church to stop talking during the Mass. They were down there talking about God knows what, anything and everything, but you can be sure it wasn't disputing some obscure point in St. Thomas. Now this isn't new. And it's, it's a Catholic problem. I've, he I've heard Protestant visitors scandalized by this, by this profane behavior, this worldly behavior in the church. We go into the church, we're going in deeper into Christ. We're going into the Holy of Holies. We're in front of the sacrament. And particularly if the sacrament is exposed. In that case, I mean, the disrespect is, is really quite significant. Look, I mean, we have to address this. Now, I just want to address the general principle now. You are in the temple. 
so you behave differently. If you're a man, you uncover your head. You take that cap off your head. Uncover your head. And if you're a woman, well, traditionally, you cover your head. It's up to you. Cover, uncover. But whatever you do should be deliberate and should be intentionally worshipful. And so on. One genuflex, one takes holy water, and so on, and so on. Our whole disposition, the churches should be places of profound silence when the holy sacrifice is not going on. And they should be owned, that silence should only be broken by prayer and by sacred music. Or by the swinging of censers, or whatever. Now laugh at me as much as you want. I'm telling you, it's no wonder we can't pray. It's no wonder we can't pray when we have turned the temple, our father's house, we have turned it into a market. And there's nothing wrong with a market. A market is a market. And church is church. Okay? Now I'm going to go a step further. I don't know what you're going to think of this. Now, some of you some of you aren't going to like this. I don't think, I think several of you won't like this, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. And I'm not just trying to annoy you. Well, maybe a little bit. Uh, I'm Irish after all. Have we turned the church into a market? You know, there's an old Italian saying, traditore, traditore, translator, traitor. Because the translator always betrays the author. The translator never gets it entirely right because it's an impossible job. I'm thinking of the famous battleground that is Vatican II, love it or hate it, which is a council of the church. And listen to me, watch my lips when I say a council of the church, an ecumenical council of the church, whose decrees are to be treated with the greatest reverence and profound respect. And the fight is over the interpretation of those decrees. And I just want to ask, you know, is it not time to overturn the money changers' counters? You know? Like all those who are saying, oh, well, you know, the council permitted this, that and the other. The, the council didn't permit the destruction, the absolute ruin of our sacred liturgy. I'm not saying the Novus Ordo is the ruin of the sacred liturgy, although I think the Novus Ordo has many faults. It can still be celebrated with great beauty and reverence. But I'm saying an awful lot of what wasn't mandated, and the council didn't mandate what we have, but that was later done by the Holy Father and with his authority. I'm just saying the council didn't mandate the worldliness with which the mass is routinely celebrated by priest and people in the Novus Ordo. It didn't mandate that exactly the opposite read the documents. They're full of love and reverence and awe. They are. And we've huckstered and bargained over them. We've pretended that the council said this and the council said that. We've used it as an excuse for all sorts of vulgarity and disrespect in our churches. I mean, this is a huge problem. Now, you can say back to me, well, we have to make use of modern technology. We have to do all this. Yes, we have to do all of that. But there's a whole load of stuff that we didn't have to do. There's a whole load of stuff that we didn't have to do. I mean, there's a reasonable question now. Bishop Barron has talked about it in his... Uh, and I was listening to one just there in, in his talks, in his podcasts, in his interviews. Is that they estimate now that a huge percentage of American Catholics don't believe in the Blessed Eucharist. And I bet that that's reflected in Ireland as well. Because if we did believe in it, we'd have more respect. Now, I'm not saying somebody hasn't faith just because they talk in church. I'm sure people talked among themselves while our Lord Jesus Christ himself was teaching. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying it's not helping faith. 
and it's not a good expression of faith. And I would say to believers who behave like that, including myself, including priests, I would say, you've had better days. You're playing a bit below your game. I have seen priests in procession going in, God bless the mark, to requiem masses, gabbling and talking and blathering among themselves with no semblance of reverence or preparation for prayer or for the holy sacrifice. I'm telling you now, I'm saying now this has to stop. It's destroying the church. You can say the church is being destroyed by drugs and fornication and all the rest of it. Don't you cod yourself. The, dis- the real destruction is happening much, it's much deeper. It's much in closer to the core. It's happening in terms of our faith in the Eucharist. It's happening in terms of our faith in Christ as the temple. It's happening in terms of our capacity to worship and pray. That's where the damage is being done. A man can watch a, a, a dirty film. He can watch pornography. He can take drugs and still believe in God. But I'm telling you, I'm not justifying those things, by the way. They're gravely sinful. But I'm telling you that if you keep behaving in a slovenly manner in church, that if you keep talking to your neighbour about profane things in church, about worldly, ordinary, workaday things in church, we are all distracted in prayer, but if you keep multiplying and institutionalising your distraction and making it the default position, you will lose your faith. And you won't need to be watching pornography online or taking drugs or overindulging in alcohol or gluttony with food or whatever it is, or power or money. You'll have done it just through acting the slobber in the church. When I was a boy, if somebody was clumsy, the comment of the old people good-naturedly was, oh, slobber the broth. Slobber the broth. Broth, of course, being a, a kind of soup, very nourishing soup. Somebody slobbering the broth off the table. Somebody who didn't know how to eat. It was kind of taken as a, a catch-all for all sorts of clumsiness. I'm saying this to you now, and I'm saying it to myself, and I'm saying it to the priesthood. Slobber the broth. Because we're slobbering the liturgical and spiritual and ecclesial broth. And we're slobbering as well, we're slobbering the nourishing broth of the Vatican Council by haggling dishonestly and dealing dishonestly over its decrees, supposed decrees, imagined decrees. And I'm aiming this at liberals and I'm also aiming it at the hard Catholic right for want of a better term. You get over yourselves and pull yourselves up. This talk that's going on among some young Catholics about the invalid, it's kind of the, almost as if Vatican II had no authority. You just get over yourself. That's disloyal and it's verging on the heretical. The council taught with authority. The council must be studied with respect by all believers. The council fathers cannot be held responsible for the madness that went on afterwards. Look, I'm not even going to say madness. I'll just say pure, slovenly theology, slovenly ecclesiology, slovenly liturgy, slovenly liturgical theology, maybe even slovenly Christology. This business, I mean, I don't know how many times I've said this, 
Will you listen to me now when I say this? You think you're fit for the world. You think you can master the world. You think you can deal with the world. The world has you in a thousand different ways already. And if you keep bringing in the dealings of the world into the sacred precincts, whether they're of the, your, your local church or of the church writ large, if you keep dealing with lack of charity and lack of respect and lack of reverence, how can you expect the church's daily life will be absolutely terrible? That the atmosphere in the church will be terrible? That relations in the church will be dysfunctional? Of course they will. Because of your money changing. Because of your slobbering the broth. Because of your huckstering, as Pierce common, your bargaining and huckstering with God. There's a time for bargaining and huckstering. Outside the temple, my friend. Outside the temple. Not in the temple. Not in the temple temple. Not in the church building. Not in front of the blessed sacrament. Not in the building of living stones that is the Catholic church on earth which will last to the end of history and transmute into the kingdom. Not there. Not in Christ. Not in Christo. There you don't bargain or huckster. There you worship, you kneel, you obey. And our obedience is glad and joyful and active and indeed proactive. It is not passive. Our obedience is direct engagement, spiritually, physically, literally, with the living word of God. Now we have to stop this. Or when he comes back, he, he, he'll have a more durable whip in his hands than one made of a few cords. We have to stop this because we're tearing the church apart. You know, I remember years ago, and he was much abused for it, where Cardinal O'Fee was asked about the situation in the North. And he said that 90% of the religious bigotry was Protestant and an awful lot of people quoted him and were very outraged by what he said. They didn't finish what he'd said, which was that 90% of the political bigotry was Catholic. Both sides were well able to go. They were just different emphasis. And I'm just saying here that I see, I see the same hardness of heart, the same insolent, reckless, rebellious spirit on the far left and the far right of the Catholic Church. And all I can hear is the clink of coins on the counters of the money changers in the court of the Gentiles. That's what I can hear. That's what I can hear. You have some people on the, on, let's say liberal side, for want of a better term, on the liberal side who regard the Latin Mass with absolute contempt and horror. What a ridiculous attitude towards the Mass that nourished our ancestors. And a Mass that is so beautiful and so profoundly reverent and has so much to teach us. Indeed, I, I would go so far as to say that every priest should learn to say the old rite, as I, I learned about a year ago, although I haven't done it much. Uh, I haven't put it into practice much. Every priest should learn, if for no other reason than to improve your celebration of the Novus Order. At the very least, it will teach you how to stand before God. And standing before God on behalf of the people is no small matter. It is no small matter. The old Irish monks used to call those words of institution of the Eucharist the oratio periculosa, the dangerous oration, the dangerous saying, because it was so dangerous to the priest if he was not in a state of grace. And I think how often have I, have I gone out on the altar with anger in my heart or impatience or irritation or worldly thoughts how often? And so the, the coins clink 
on the money changers' counters and we sell the church. Yeats said romantic Ireland's dead and gone. You remember the poem, What need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence? I am the son and proud son of hard-working shopkeepers. Uh, Yeats might have looked down on shopkeepers because he, he had notions of aristocracy, which were actually quite dodgy, by the way. That's the butler part. Nothing wrong with shopkeepers, but I'm telling you now that the church building and the church writ large the Church of Christ, the Bride of Christ, in Cristo, in Christ, the temple, is not a place for bargaining. It is not a place for double dealing. It is not even a place for diplomacy. It is a place for manners. Diplomacy is, it can be a dark business. It's a place for manners, yes. A very elevated kind of manners. The Novus Ordo Mass is perfectly valid. It has faults. It has faults. But then don't the priests, don't we all? The old rite, the Tridentine rite, is tremendously elegant, but it is not the only form for the celebration of the Latin rite. Now, some people need to get that into their little heads and keep it there. Because I understand this talk among some, some hardline conservatives about the Novus Ordo being invalid. That is heretical. It is heretical. So I, I do not trust these extremists. I'm sorry. They may be good people at heart. They may be well-intentioned, but I don't trust their extremism. I don't trust the, the, the huge restlessness that I detect in them. There is something in them of the arid wind of the desert. There's the spirit of rage that is in them, the restlessness of evil. It does not belong in the mouth of a priest. It does not belong in the mouth of a, of a Catholic. You should love the church and you should love the Pope. I mean, the stuff that's being said about Pope Francis is just a way out of line. He has a certain teaching approach. I've said this before. If you were a student at the Greg back about 30 years ago, when some of us were, the Gregorian in Rome, when it was heavily controlled at the time or seemed to be by Spanish Jesuits, he's a perfectly legible figure. They're tough as old boots. They're very, very strict. They're very hardworking. They have huge work ethic. They're tremendously demanding and they live for the church. Fantastic teachers. Jesuits teach by starting a fight. They take that maiutic, that Socratic method. You know, Socrates, the Greek teacher who, who kept, he said, I know nothing. I know nothing. Tell me, tell me. And he kept asking questions. Socrates drove everyone cracked. Now, Francis takes that approach with the church. Is that wise? I don't know. I'm not the Pope. I'm nervous. I have to admit I am really nervous sometimes with some of the stuff he does. I have to grip both sides of the chair. But you'll have that with a charismatic, strong leader, visionary leader. You're going to have that. Is he a heretic? I'm not aware of any proof that the Holy Father is a heretic, as, as some people seem to think. He has a certain approach, the prudence of which might be debated. He's still the Holy Father. And his approach has undeniable strengths. He has hammered on the question of the poor. He has hammered on the question of the excluded. He has brought up, and in the same way as Leo XIII brought the, the unions, the whole labour question, into respectability in the most innermost courts of the church, 
Francis has brought the environment and the whole way we treat the planet and the way we treat animals right into mainstream discussion, theological discussion in the church. Now, who's going to question that when you consider turning the entire planet into the town dump, into the Gehenna? Because that's what the Gehenna was. It was the city dump in Jerusalem that was constantly on fire, constantly being burned. Get rid of the rats, get rid of the everything that would burn. Diminish the landfill. Seas are full of rubbish. Come on, we're a mucky crowd. We're slobber the broth. We're a mucky crowd and we're doing this in the temple that is God's world. And God's world is the temple because Christ envelops the whole of creation and justifies it and has saved it if the creation will only allow him to save it. And we are within him everywhere. So we could do with tidying up after ourselves. And I say that as an untidy man. I'm an untidy man. Look, I feel we have to get in behind the Holy Father here. I really do. I feel we have to get in behind him. I feel we have to get in behind the church. We have to get in behind the Vatican Council and the Council Fathers. We have to get in behind the liturgy. We have to say to conservatives, you have a point, we're hearing you. We have to say to the liberals, you have a point, we're hearing you. Here is the teaching of the church. Here we stand. If you have to go, you have to go. We'll miss you. You shouldn't. We don't want you to go. It's a terrible thing to leave the church. But you're free. We don't have the Inquisition anymore. You can go. Go if you want. God forgive you. God forgive us if we made you go. But maybe you have to go. Maybe you have to go if you think the Holy Father is a heretic. Maybe you have to go if you think the Pope should be some sort of a version of Fidel Castro. And, and, and I don't know. You know, turn the church into a, into some sort of a, a Marxist-Leninist paradise. Maybe you should go. Maybe there are people who should go. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not telling them to go, but maybe they should. Because they don't believe anymore. Look, I'm begging priests and lay people who have kept their heads and who are standing firmly. I won't say in the centre, because they, the middle of the road isn't necessarily the place where the truth is. The truth could be on the right, or the truth could be on the left. Who knows? I believe the truth is in the magisterium and the constant and common teaching of the church. I, be, I believe that that's where you are safe, and that is the teaching of the church. Now, will you stand with me? Will you stand, more importantly, will you stand with the Holy Father? Will you stand with our bishops and stand with the Holy Father? And I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm saying to priests now, and look, my head caves in at this. There's only one way to deal with this atmosphere in the church at the moment. There is only one way to deal with it, is we must turn our Father's house back into our Father's house. We must stop the money changing. We must stop this barbarous and unchristian traffic that is going on internally in the church. This bargaining and huckstering over sacred doctrines, over things that are of God. Let's not betray, let the translator not be the traitor. Let's not betray the council by saying that it gave license for every sort of idiocy and stupidity and foolishness in the, in the liturgy. Let's not betray the council by saying it wasn't a proper council or wait for it, oh, it was only a pastoral council or it was only this, or it was only that. You want to hear more about this, watch, watch that guy Tim Gordon. Good guy, Tim Gordon, and a Gregorian man. He, he studied at the Gregorian. Good guy, solid guy. Very, very just, very righteous, very, 
very, very fair approach. You watch some of his podcasts, and he's very, very good on this. The council commands your obedience. So just stop misbehaving and stop this tantrum and get over yourself and stop being so, so spiritually posh. You know, get down here into the court of the Gentiles with the rest of us and clean it up. Help us clean it up. And I say the same thing to the liberals. Get down off your academic liberation theology high horse. We're not selling out our church to Marxism. We're not selling it out to neo-Marxism. We're not selling it out to postmodernism or, or deconstructionism or anything else you want to sell it out to. So you can just forget that. Get back down here with the rest of us. I'm not telling you to become some sort of a Stepford wife. I'm not trying to turn the church into into an Orwellian kind of airstrip one, where we'll all be just identical, grey, frightened-looking people. I want everyone to have their own personality, their own journey, their own... But the faith is one holy, Catholic and apostolic. One baptism for the remission of sins. And we together look forward to life everlasting. Amen. We have turned it into a den of thieves, a cave of robbers, a market. We have turned it into all those things. Let's roll up our sleeves and claim for Christ, claim back his church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.